Hi, everybody. This is Peter Graves and upcoming USA Nordics podcast, Ticket to Fly. A preview of the show coming up as we talk to executive director and Olympic gold medalist, Billy DeMong. And joining me on the preview is our producer, Tom Kelly. And Tom, we learned a lot about Billy DeMong today, his articulate nature, uh, his focus, his devotion to his task. We also learned a little bit about the backstory growing up in the shadow of Lake Placid. To me, how it all came together was very interesting. This is a fascinating interview again on Ticket to Fly, Peter. And I've known Billy since the late 90s when I first met him in Steamboat Springs, just a little guy coming up through the ranks. And I think the first thing that I wanted to highlight in this preview is his relationship with athletes like Tim Burke and Lowell Bailey of biathlon fame. And the culture that was developed. He grew up in this little town of Vermontville. Let's just call it Lake Placid. It's in that region. But but those athletes growing up together, motivating each other, ultimately led to great success for all of them. Right. And uh, an experience, Tom, that you and I shared together being at the 2010 Olympic Winter Games in Vancouver. Uh, it was a pretty special moment. Uh, Billy takes us through a lot of those special moments and talks about uh, the relationship with uh, Johnny Spillane's performance as being very motivating to him. That was an amazing era for Nordic Combined, and I can remember all of these little benchmarks along the way. You know, I remember the uh, tragic swimming pool accident that Billy had in 2002, his comeback. I remember him, or not him, but I remember Johnny Spillane in 2003 winning that gold medal at the World Championships in Italy, something that was just unheard of in the sport. And Bill goes through and puts those pieces together leading up to that moment in Vancouver when he won his Olympic gold medal. What an amazing chapter in sport that was. Yeah, and he also talks about uh, his sort of personal life today and how being a husband and father has really uh, rounded out his life, which uh, he worked so hard. Yeah, it's there's so many different components, and I, I I just like Bill. He was he's been an athlete, he's been a coach, he has a family now. He's now running the USA Nordic program, so uh, this is going to be a good one to listen to. Well, thanks very much, Tom. So upcoming, you're going to hear 40 year old executive director Bill Demong of USANS, a five time Olympian. I think it's a fascinating interview. Thanks, Tom. That interview coming up. Welcome to USA Nordic's podcast, Ticket to Fly. I'm your host, Peter Graves, and straight ahead, we're going to talk to the executive director of USANS, USA Nordic, a five-time Olympian, and of course, how we remember his gold medal-winning ways in Vancouver at the Olympic Games, also a silver in the relay, originally out of Vermontville, New York, 
And that is Bill DeMong. And Bill, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, We've got a lot to cover and it's great to have you with us. Hey, Peter, it's great to catch up with you as well. I'm looking forward to catching everybody up a little bit on what we've been up to both in ski jumping and Nordic combined with USA Nordic. And then, you know, just talking a little bit about, you know, why I got so passionate about these sports as a kid and as an elite athlete and now as uh, the director of the, the leadership organization. Well, it sounds uh, fun, and that's the way we'd like to head. So, Bill, I, I want to begin at the beginning because uh, probably there are people out there who, who of course, know about your uh, uh, remarkable career, five-time Olympian. Uh, you had a gold medal in Liberets, four world championship medals, uh, and a career that began on the World Cup back in 1997. So you grew up in the small town of Vermontville, New York, which is near Saranac Lake, and then uh, not so far away from Lake Placid. So let's kind of begin at the beginning. How did you get in to the sport of Nordic Combined? You know, it's a great question, Peter, and one that I like to reflect on a lot. In fact, I had a conversation with some good friends of mine, Tim Burke and Lowell Bailey, who are both on the U.S. biathlon team. And respectively had some of the best results in American history in their sport. Uh, But we all grew up together in the Tri-Lakes area of Lake Placid, Saranac Lake, uh, Tupper Lake, upstate New York. And um, and really the catalyst to getting us all involved was more or less a parent-built community program in Saranac Lake that was centered around Dewey Mountain. And, you know, it really started with five and six and seven-year-olds uh, under the lights, the few lights that there were at Dewey Mountain and and learning how to love cross-country skiing at the earliest age. And and it was a it was a club that, you know, like I think makes most people nostalgic thinking about, you know, parents, um, a lot of little kids hanging out under the lights, drinking hot cocoa after traveling around mid-Atlantic in the east and and doing the Bill Coke Youth Ski League, um, which was what we competed in at the time. And Um, you know, I, I got my start there with cross country and was surrounded by other kids that were just really motivated in a, in a great support group of parents and, and eventually coaches. And, um, you know, early on, so I started Nordic skiing at five. Um, but by the age of eight, um, very, uh, very famous Nordic coach, uh, Larry Stone came to our Nordic practice and he showed us a video of, of jumping and, you know, it had everything from ski flying to little kids jumping. Um, it was set to Van Halen, got us all super fired up. And, uh, you know, like we got sucked into trying ski jumping and I knew right away that that's what I love to do. And, and so that was like really my sport entry point into Nordic combined. That's really, really interesting. So you got inspired there. Um, and, and then you go all the way to, an Olympic champion. Um, that era, uh, as you became on the U.S. ski team, um, was really, really powerful and interesting. And I, I saw it well, uh, particularly with those World Cups we had at Steamboat. I'd like to talk a little about that era of growth for the Nordic combined team. And of course, um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, Johnny Spillane's performances and how they may have influenced you. You know, so just to extrapolate on the Tim Burke, Lowell Bailey, Billy DeMung conversation the other day, this has been fascinating to all of us, you know, both from the Saranac Lake, 
Lake Placid, you know, Nordic kids group, and then also in the Nordic combined national team group, because to us, it's really been about the power of the group. And so if you look, not only did Tim Lowell and I go on to success at international levels, but there was another four athletes who competed at the Olympic games in ski jumping, Nordic combined and biathlon. And, and on top of that, you look actually at, and and on, sorry, on top of that, there was another dozen kids that went to ski in college, you know, out of that same group of 30 or 40 kids. So it's pretty fantastic or fascinating, I should say, um, you know, what, how does all that talent, quote unquote talent come out of one little place? And, you know, I think the more that we've been around it and the closer that we've gotten to it, you know, being the best in the world, the, the more we realize it's not in the water you know, there's nothing really that special, but there is something about the power of the group. And, you know, to kind of switch gears and talk about Nordic combined, we had the same sort of situation where, you know, visionary coach Tom Stites uh, brought the Nordic combined team together because he saw that, hey, this is a small sport in a big country. And if if everybody trains on their own, then they're not going to be as as strong as the power of the group. And so he basically mandated back in 94 I want to say uh, that everybody that wanted to be on the team had to move to Steamboat Springs and, you know, show up every day when the coaches said to, to be on the national team. And, and that really started to yield this same sort of group aspect um, in the Nordic combined team. And to kind of circle back to what you mentioned about Johnny Spillane and Tim and I, and Lowell and I talked about this the other day, the most important thing that led to success across the board from our junior group to our Nordic combined national team group was having that sort of day-to-day, um, you know, interaction with your group and then having somebody get out in front. So like, it was most important that we felt like we were peers on a level playing field. And then once somebody reached the next level, we all felt that we could get there too. And we inspired each other or we challenged each other. You know, it was, it took a number of different uh, you know, kind of ways over time. But at the end of the day, like when Johnny Spillane really started to, to hit some of our breakout performances, like his world championship victory in 2003, the first ever for an American Nordic skier, um, you know, it just opened the door for the rest of us to say, well, Hey, you know, I love Johnny and he's a super talented guy, but I definitely beat him in training as many times as he's beaten me. And, you know, therefore he might have the gold medal, but I know I could do it too. And Tim Lowell and I talked about that same sort of mentality as to as a contributing factor to the success of our little group in Saranac Lake. And when you go back to Nordic Combined, you you also have to look at that started in '94, and really Todd Lodwick and Ryan Heckman and some of the other guys who were the first ones to get initial success. But by being teammates to our younger generation, they opened our mental and physical doors to be able to say, "Hey, if Todd can win a World Cup." And I see Todd all summer and train with him every day. I know what he's really made of. You know, I know I can do that too. And that really helped create team-wide success. Yeah, that that's fascinating to me. I mean, you know, I, I, I have certainly uh, interviewed like Keegan Randall a lot. And, you know, she had mentioned to me that uh, Becky Scott's medal in Salt Lake was a real affirmation that, you know, I can do this too. And then, you know, and Jesse Dickens comes along and 
and then all of a sudden you have this this other group of young women coming along and they believe they can do it so there is so much power i think in in that group dynamic. Uh, and it, it was very special to see that come to fruition. Billy, I want to just quickly, when you were competing, Nordic combined in many ways was, um, was revolutionary in, uh, I mean, it's, it's an age old sport. It was the, uh, in the original Olympic games, but then all of a sudden uh, you guys are seeing new formats and a real evolution in the way Nordic Combined was presented. Um, what were your thoughts looking back on, on you know, Big Hill, Small Hill, et cetera? Yeah, you know, it's so when I came onto the international scene, which really was around the time of my first Olympic birth in 1998, you know, I was just a junior up until that point and, and really made some huge strides over a year. And that was exactly the point between 98 and 2002 that the most change in formats really came about. Um, and, and it really was a push to uh, make the sport more exciting, more, more palatable, especially to like a television audience. So we, we went from a two day format, you know, where we would go and, and jump one day and then, and then have a race based on the jumping the next day and really try to sandwich that into like a, like a palatable package for that at-home audience. Um, and and I have to say, I feel like through that time when it went to a one-day format on the World Cup and Olympic stage in 2002, um, through 2010, we, we actually experimented with a lot of other formats, um, including, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a hurricane sprint. Yes, yes. Where essentially the whole field started at the same time, but there was a distance penalty. So it looked like, it looked like a like a cyclone of skiers unraveling itself from the stadium. And you had to overcome the distance penalty as opposed to a time penalty in a traditional Gunderson start. Um, you know, I, I'm a bit mixed. I feel like we've made some huge strides in making a great uh, product for our fans. But I also feel like we we then second-guessed ourselves sometime around 2010 and and decided we, we had gone too far and needed to simplify and so we went from what was more traditionally like a 7.5 and a 15K race format, a one jump and a two jump format, um, to really one jump and 10K. And while I think it achieved uh, some of the goals of reducing the barriers to entry to the sport or reducing the barrier of entry to a spectator to understand it, I do think that we're at that point again with Nordic Combine where there's, there's certainly a desire within our fan base to see some additional formats to see if we can exude a different way uh, of producing the result. And, and I say that because as you know, you know, Peter, like this is a fantastically exciting sport in its modern day iteration, which is the one jump, you know, uh, pursuit format of the Gunderson start. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, all that being said, there is a, there's a deep enough fan base that remembers the days of when Billy DeMunk could win a 15K but really couldn't do a 7.5 because he literally didn't go any faster. Or you had a ski jumper like Ronnie Ackerman who could you know, run away with a 7.5K after a great jump but couldn't hang on. You know, So there's, there's some computations I'd like to see come back to, to make it more exciting for our fans. Interesting. Bill, when you, when you look back at that period and, and you have that Olympic gold and, and silver medal, um, was there something that was, uh, uh, 
life-altering, life-changing to you about winning a gold? Oftentimes, athletes say that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think, uh, you know, my original life plan going into the 2002 games as a 21-year-old was essentially, you know, achieve the big goals of the team that I had bought into, which were win America's first medals in the sport. And then I was going to change my social security number and my name and disappear and you know, <laughs> move on in life. And, you know, honestly, um, both due to the fact that I didn't have that success at that age and really wasn't, you know, fully invested in what it meant, you know, like I was, I was brought up in this little Nordic combined node we're going to go get America's first medals and then we can all move on with our lives. After those games, when we were very disappointed, I actually had a pretty nasty injury just messing around, right? Cracked my skull. Um, but I ended up having to take a year off. And, um, and that year off as a 20, 21 year old gave me a lot of perspective. You know, I really set some athletic goals that I was able to train for by writing my own training programs. I also went back to school and I, and I went to work and, I got a lot broader uh, balance in my life. And so when I came back and I really looked, sat down and said, all right, do I want to go back to skiing? If so, I'm going back for the right reasons. And I sort of wrote Billy's rules, you know, which was like, you know, always have fun. If it's not fun anymore, it's not worth doing. You know, like the sun will always rise. Your mother will always love you. It's, you know, I'm not crying over sport again. Um, and then I also set goals, you know, over the next eight years, which, culminated with victory in Vancouver. And it wasn't like I have to win the Olympics in Vancouver. It was more realistically looking at the time frame and then taking stepping stone goals that I felt were achievable to put myself in a position to be able to win, whether or not I would. Um, and so when you asked the question, was it life-changing? It was funny because Vancouver was more just... Um, it was more just like a deep sense of satisfaction and justification for, for all the things that we did to invest in, you know, our training and our careers uh, to have that success. So, you know, I think as like a, basically a 30 year old having success at the Olympic level, um, I was more just satisfied than anything. You know, there's certainly been some, some doors that have been open because of a gold medal, but I never look back and sit back and say, oh my, oh my gosh, that changed my life. Because honestly, I think I owe a lot of my success to the attitude that if I had gotten fourth place, I would have gone on with my life without missing a beat. And that was a kind of a healthy, mature way to approach it. And therefore, it put me in a position to be able to be successful. Okay, interesting. And, and now, uh, of course, you you are married. You are a, a child. And uh, I, I was uh, at the USA house when you asked your uh, girlfriend, uh, to, uh, marry you. It was a very touching moment that I will, will long remember. And I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I'm guessing because I know you have an extraordinary work ethic. Uh, you worked really hard as an athlete. You work uh, prodigiously hard for you, Sands. Um, does having a family help give you some balance in life? Uh, I'll tell you what, it certainly does. Um, and it's interesting because I found, I d continued to ski, um, at the, at the world cup level for a few years after my first son was born. And in the beginning, I found it to be very challenging because I was sort of sitting at the top of a ski jump, looking down, 
wondering what the heck I was doing there, you know, like in more from like a safety perspective than anything. But as I got more adapted to having, you know, the the balance of a family life, I realized, you know, again, just like in 2002, going on and becoming a student and getting a job and, and creating that balance, I found that family has not only helped balance my life and my, you know, time and everything else, but it's made it that much more fulfilling, right? You know, it's like, it's better to win the Olympics when you can still say that you are a student and, you know, right. doing in other ways than just like, all I did was eat the right thing, sleep enough and train hard, you know, and there, therefore I won the Olympics. Like that to me is like kind of empty, you know, it's like, I did it right. I did it with my team. You know, we, we, we worked hard to, to think through this and work through this. And therefore we were successful. Like that is so much more satisfying. And, and to your point, you know, having a family and still being able to carry on, uh, carry, uh, a heavy workload and, and see success, you know, just makes it that much more uh, satisfying at the end of the day. And we're talking to Billy DeMong, the executive director of USA Nordic, and this is Ticket to Fly. I'm Peter Graves. So now you're in charge of what is a pretty big organization uh, uh, and you're dealing with quite a few different sports. And I, I want to talk about those in a moment, but were there some lessons learned for you, some philosophies developed when you were competing that you, you now bring to the program here? For instance, are you saying we're not going to do this? I lived through that and that didn't work. Uh, but uh, is there, is there something that did work that you apply to your athletes that are in your charge today? Yeah, Peter, absolutely. You know, having a 20 year career as an elite athlete, you know, I, I, I do call on my experiences a lot because, you know, not only was I personally this way, but also our team sort of had the bent to try everything to see what works and what doesn't. Even when, you know, going in, something's a bad idea. You're like, well, I heard if you're skinny, you know, the skinnier you are, the better you're going to jump. And, you know, I took that over the line and I've seen my teammates do the same thing with, you know, weight and nutrition with training, like I'm going to train more and to find that balance. And so I've tried to use my own experience, especially on the athletic side of USANS, but also some of those bigger picture lessons that I learned on my way to being an Olympic champion, which were, you know, always have fun. If it's not fun, you know, it's time to reevaluate. Um, one of the biggest lessons I learned is, you know, you really have to compete like you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And so, you know, I try to, to take that to my workplace as well as instill that in our athletes, you know, like don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid of losing. Your mother will love you. The sun will rise. We're all going to take your, keep you as a teammate, but take that burden away and let's focus on winning because winning is fun, you know? So there's, there's a lot of things. And, and it, what's interesting too, and, and I'll, I'm pretty transparent. I find that I make some of the same mistakes I made as an athlete. You know, I'm, I'm not a very patient guy and, you know, my road after 2002, which I credit to my success in 2010 really had a lot to do with slowing down and writing things down and b- becoming more organized and more focused, um, in a balanced environment. Um, and I found that, you know, I had some, some pretty good success as executive director out of the gate. And then I've had some challenges and I've, 
I've had to continually reevaluate and, and remember that my natural style is to charge hard. And what I need to adapt to is, especially in the business world, is slowing down and setting you know goals that are more manageable and also well communicated to other people. So it's an ongoing process and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, well, well said. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, where we're at with uh, some of these uh, uh, various disciplines uh, at the top of my list right now in no particular order. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about women's uh, Nordic combined. Uh, And uh, of course, uh, you have uh, uh, perhaps the best Nordic combined woman athlete. uh, with Tara, uh, in, uh, in your stable and, uh, what's the status now of women's Nordic combined? Yeah. So we can start with women's Nordic combined. Um, it's absolutely, it's absolutely a fascinating thing in that it's the last Olympic discipline without gender equity. Um, and it's one thing that I've watched Tara Garrity Motes and our, and our up and coming athletes, work really hard and especially Tara dedicated to this decades ago. Um, and to see her pursue this without really a, a strong, um, under, you know, knowledge of where it was going to go is, is absolutely a hats off to her, but I'm happy to report that, you know, I've, I've never seen in elite sport where the nations and the athletes, both men and women have come together to really focus on building that future to be viable and, and equitable for the women's, uh, for the women's Nordic combined athletes in the world. And so, you know, we're going into the first season of women's world cup Nordic combined. Um, and that will have the inaugural women's world championship. Now, obviously we're going into a COVID year, so right. all bets are off on how it's all going to play out. But I do feel that there's there's incredible dedication from the the teams and the nations and the organizers to see this develop as rapidly as possible. And I'm I'm proud of the camaraderie that we've felt inside of the sport in order combined. You know, listening to the athlete reps um, support each other, uh, listening to the nations and also the organizers. You know, we in here in the U.S. have had women's Nordic combined continental cup for three years in a row. Um, so you know that's that's a huge investment on our part, and it's. It's one that I feel, you know, is well respected and and around the world, we're all on the same page. So I think the last piece of that update on women's Nordic combined is we're tracking for introducing the women to the 26 program in our, uh, yes, the 2026 Olympic program. We were all a bit shocked and disappointed it didn't get added for 2022. But, you know, I think uh, where the sport is at, we are tracking for a very strong debut in 2026 and something we're all working together on. All right. Well, thank you for that. And let's talk about women's ski jumping, special jumping right now. Uh, how are you faring? Uh, what's the outlook there? Yeah. So, you know, thinking about women's ski jumping holistically, globally, it's gotten to be a very, very competitive discipline, you know, since its inception in the 2014 games that already was, you know, a 50 person, uh, 14 nation strong field and one that has only gotten deeper and deeper over the years. And, and also the U S being one of the leaders of the inaugural, uh, women's ski jumping teams. Um, there was a huge turnover that happened, you know, really since the first games inclusion in 2014. And now that saw some of our, uh, original champions like Lindsay van and her teammates, Jessica Jerome, Alyssa Johnson, Abby Hughes, et cetera, 
actually now Abby Ranquist, um, they have subsequently moved on and we've really started to build the new generation and huge credit to some of our alumni athletes in Blake Hughes and now Anders Johnson in helping build that program. It's one of the areas that with USA Nordic's focus on sport development, we've seen the number of youth participating in ski jumping and Nordic combined double in the United States over the past decade. And it's an area that's mostly driven by an increase in young women. And so we're really trying to help facilitate, um, you know, uh, reduced attrition and increased retention in that junior ranks. You know, we're seeing three, four, five hundred young women a year participate in a competition in ski jumping and Nordic combined. And we're, we're really trying to show them that this pathway is viable. And as a result, the women's ski jumping team is our largest team now at USA Nordic. Hmm, that's cool. And now let's talk about, about uh, both uh, men's uh, special jumping and Nordic combined and and uh, how the outlook is, how things are progressing. Uh, so uh, give me an update there. Yeah. So again, you know, a lot, and, and I think this is really going to turn into a conversation about the origin of our organization, USA Nordic Sport, and sort of our current track. But you know, there, the Olympic movement in this country has seen a drastic change in resource allocation just in my last two decades of tenure as an athlete and now an administrator. Um, and really, it started, you know, in 2008 and nine after the last financial crisis, when resources started to, to, to be more and more uh, disparate and some tough allocation decisions were made, including to not fund uh, programs that didn't have immediate uh, medal potential. And as a result, the men's ski jumping program um, had its funding taken away by its national governing body, U.S. Ski and Snowboard, along with other disciplines like ski cross and PGS uh, snowboarding. Um, and as a result, the alumni of the sport of ski jumping started with Project X, which was literally, let's let's just make sure that our best athletes have the opportunity to continue to compete on the world stage. Right. Um, you know, and, and over time, um, that became a, a much more robust organization with more programming, including in the beginning of our sport development efforts. And after 2014, continued resource allocation decisions were made and Nordic Combined failed to win a medal in 2014. And there wasn't deemed immediate uh, prospects. And so that men's Nordic Combined program was also cut from a funding perspective. And that's when we we really merged together. I actually started right after my athletic career ended in Sochi and started on the board of what was then USA Ski Jumping. Right. And 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 quickly started to understand, okay, I think where we are in time now and in what you really and as a as a business person, as a as a leader, I always want to look into the future and think about the sustainability pieces. Like how do we build organizations and programs that are going to be sustainable successfully, both financially, athletically, um, and all the other aspects. And, and really looking at the way our organization was developing, you know, I, I recognized that there really needed to be a ski jumping and Nordic combined focused organization for all of our constituents, men and women, you know, clubs, parents, athletes, uh, et cetera. And that was, you know, really when I took on the executive director role starting in 2016, that's when I set to work to say, okay, we need to bring 
all of our constituents, all of our fans, all of our athletes, all of our parents, all of our clubs and community together. And that's why, you know, it was already hard enough to try to merge men's Nordic and mine and men's ski jumping elite programs together. But we quickly set out to bring in the women's ski jumping athletes to the fold and their team operations and start building the sport in Nordic combined. And I think, you know, as a result, we have a very focused, well-connected, well-organized community. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So um, I also want to talk to you um, about uh, you are working uh, with a congressional committee, I believe. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what that work entails? Yeah, and and to be clear, I because of this resource allocation um, issue that we've had, and really thinking more globally um, about the problem, you know, as <clears throat> I'm sure you can attest, Peter what it means to be an Olympic athlete has changed so much in our lifetimes. Yes. And even since I started on the team, you know, the, the amount of resources available to help fund travel and training and coaching, et cetera, you know, has become much more spread thin. And, and you really look now and, and the age of the athletes that are at their peak are much older. You know, these are professional careers. And yet here we are in a, in a time that a lot of athletes, especially in ski and snowboarding, are having to to come up with some of their own uh, costs, and and to me this is this is unsustainable. Um, and so going back right till this time, I started with uh, USA Nordic as the executive director. I started to think about okay, what are the what are the avenues that we could use to increase um, the resources available to support athletes and programs, and you know build a more sustainable future for a broader group of, of athletes to pursue these careers and for the organizations to be able to fund programs that are going to be, um, you know, competitive internationally. And, you know, so it started with actually a bunch of different ideas. And there's a gentleman from Steamboat Springs, Colorado named Eric Washburn, who has a career uh, experience in, uh, he was the legislative director for Tom Daschle. Um, and Eric <clears throat> was instrumental in helping me pull some 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 money together for USA Nordic. But more so, we started to brainstorm what are the different legislative possibilities that we could utilize to increase the resources available for skiing and snowboarding. And we got some really good traction four or five years ago with some some ideas that uh, mirrored other industry related efforts like, um, you know, excise taxes and fees that really are an industry investing in its own future and ensuring its own future. And there's a lot of examples in the United States. And so we started there and, you know, we got pretty far with it, but eventually, you know, didn't feel like it was the right pathway. And we kept reiterating and trying a new direction. And three or four years ago, we started talking about different ideas about resourcing athletes and the U.S. Olympic Committee and the NGBs and youth sport. So everything from things other nations are doing, like a national sports lottery, like what the U.K. has done, um, increasing the amount of uh, uh, military participation and supporting athletes, like sport army situations that are done in most of the other countries um, and is done in the United States, like the world-class athlete program that a couple of our athletes like Jasper Good and Ben Loomis are proud members of, um, you know, so really trying to throw together, what are the different ideas that we come up with to better resource sports in America, specifically youth sports and amateur or Olympic sports, um, you know, to make us world-class sustainably into the future. 
And then while we were doing all this, and I'd been to DC four or five times on my own dime and time, um, the there was some amazing um, and really, you know, really sad discoveries about um, abuse that was happening within the Olympic movement, specifically around gymnastics and Larry Nasser, but also in other sports. And in you know, there was kind of the advent of the what's now known as safe sport. Um, and really what that did is it shed a brighter light across some of the issues that Eric and I had been working on and other people had been talking about, but it became a much broader discussion at the congressional level about how are we serving our Olympic athletes and the Olympic movement in the United States? And is it working? Because, you know, at the end of the day, people probably don't realize, but the amateur sports act, which was really, um, it was really just put together about 45 years ago. Right. By um, Ted Stevens, I think was a, of Alaska was a, a exactly. big mover and shaker there. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a big, you know, that was an outcry by athletes, including, you know, Prefont, uh, Steve Prefontaine. Um, and what really changed directions from the AAC and, and created the USOPC and, and allowed it to monopolize the value of the rings to basically become the travel agent for the Olympic movement. Um, and, you know, it worked really, really well, I think, for at least two decades. And then it got a little bit of a tweak in 1998. And then it worked again for another decade about. But, you know, th these things need to be retuned as, as realities change. And like I mentioned before, you have athletes who are peaking 10 years older than they used to, to be able to compete with the best in the world. You have obviously huge, much larger expenses associated with this. And these really have become professional careers. And that's just on the athletic side. You know, I think, you know, the, the monetization of the rings, the USOPC has done a really admirable job with that for a long time. But I think it's proven now that it's not sufficient for the entire system. And I think there's other challenges. I think the barriers to entry in youth sport have become increasingly large. And I think, you know, the NCAA <clears throat> has been a huge breeding grounds for a lot of our summer athletes and less so over the last couple decades for our winter athletes. But overall, I think there's going to be some challenges for the NCAA to continue to have as many elite programs to hand off, you know, medal ready athletes at the games level that they used to. And so I, I do think that this is the time and kind of going all the way back to your original question, I am uh, offering my best input um, there's been some legislation that recently passed the House and the Senate, started with the Senate, um, which is the Olympic Reform Act. Um, and a piece of that, and what I see as the, the most important piece for overall long-term change, is a commission. And the commission is to be comprised of about 50% athletes on a 16-person board. And then for nine months, we'll study the movement and report back to Congress on what is working well and what is not working well, where are the areas for improvement. And, and, and these experts will, you know, give Congress a list of ideas and and things that they can implement to help ensure that the United States of America can be the, one of the best nations in the world in the Olympic movement, you know, into the future, like it has been in the past. And so, you know, I, I, um, I, it's something I'm passionate about and I'm willing to allocate that, that time on the side. Cause I think that this is over the next couple of years, we're going to make some ma major changes. And my hope is that those changes yield a better future for organizations like USA Nordic sport and all of our amazing Olympic athletes.
Yeah, I mean, very well said. And and certainly one of the things that this uh, COVID uh, virus has uh, has uh, caused to come to pass is you see uh, many colleges cutting sports. Uh, in some cases, uh, skiing has been on the chopping block for for some. And uh, those were uh, colleges like Stanford. Uh, th- those were the the testing grounds, the proving grounds for a lot, lot of athletes. So maybe a short answer on this because I got one other topic I want to get into is: uh, Are you, are you, let's say, cautiously optimistic about the direction sport in general is going? I am. I and honestly, if you asked me that question two years ago, I would have been a lot more negative. I I think that there's a tremendous amount of attention now being pointed at everything from the youth sport to the Olympic level in this country. And, and we're, you know, we're overdue a reset now that's going to allow us uh, to move forward as one of the top nations in the world. And so I'm much more optimistic now. And I hope that, uh, you know, to the extent that I can, I can help contribute. But at the end of the day, I'm really excited to see what the new vision um, and the new reality is for, for Olympic movement and, and, and athletes in the United States, especially in the next couple of years. And, and then going into LA 28. And I think, you know, without getting too far out of ourselves, I'm also looking forward to a winter games back here in, in the United States, not too long after LA. Yeah. You know, uh, we're beginning to touch on an issue I wanted to ask you about. And that is, of course, there has uh, been talk of of uh, jumping in Nordic combined, uh, trying to seek their own NGB status. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how that's going and, and perhaps the relationship with U.S. Ski and Snowboard, Bill? Sure. Yeah. You know, Peter, and this is really like going back to something I think I said early you know, this is about looking forward and saying what is going to be the best setup, um, you know, to ensure that, you know, especially with my focus on ski jumping in Nordic Combined, that these that these sports have the opportunities and resources they need, um, that the athletes that are going to contr- to the, commit to these teams and these sports have the resources they need. Um, and honestly, you know, if you look back a decade, you know, without passing real judgment, there was some serious resource allocation decisions that needed to be made. Ski jumping and Nordic combined were were cut uh, from a funding perspective due to those those uh, decisions. And you know, there's there is the argument that well, if there's a gold medalist coming down the pipe, um, we'll fund that. But at the end of the day, I you know, you don't make gold medalists overnight. They need to be supported and nourished. And and that's why I think that having an an organization like USA Nordic Sport with the focus that it has is for its disciplines and its athletes is so critical. And it really does do a great job of of uniting the community and the clubs and and making sure people are working in the same direction and 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 owning this, you know, and building and owning those goals together. Um so, you know, it's kind of a funny question, you know, the NGB National Governing Body question. You know, I was on the US ski and snowboard team for you know, nearly two decades and I took a lot of pride in it and I still do. Um, but I have to ask myself every day, what is the best situation, you know, for our sports and our athletes to ensure long-term sustainable viability financially and athletically? Um, and, you know, I think that our relationship with US Ski and Snowboard is very amicable. We do a lot of things together that we would always do together because we are skiing, skiing and snowboarding. 
and we are underneath the International Ski Federation. However, on a day-to-day operational basis, we're almost exclusively separate at this point. And, you know, this really is going to come down to a resource discussion at some point. You know, if if USA Nordic Sport, I think we have a great situation in terms of making decisions about what our athletes need, what our staff needs, you know, how to best operate world-class programs and also do the meaningful uh, sport development and and pipeline investments that we need to do for our sports. And I don't want to see that change because I think it's had a huge impact um, into the viability of, of our nation in those disciplines, but it also will have long-term ramifications, which if all those resources go away or get reallocated, we won't see. But I also have to ask myself every single day, what's going to be the best way to resource this and lead it into the future? Um, and, and to me, like that is why I tend to lean toward, I think we need to be our own national governing body because that focus like is, is critical to make sure that this, this momentum that we've accumulated isn't going to fall away. And, you know, but that being said, if us ski and snowboards vision shifted, and instead of being so focused on medals, we can win tomorrow, it became more focused on how do we ensure that we can win medals forever in every one of our disciplines, and therefore we're going to change our re- uh, allocation of resources, then I, I think my community and myself would be open to that discussion. We just need to make sure that our, our long-term resource, uh, ability to resource is going to be best served by the decisions we make, you know, and so... I probably left you with more questions than answers on that, but you know, I think um, overall, I'm more focused on how do I build up the the future for ski jumping, Nordic combined, and if that future includes, uh, you know, its own national governing body or staying underneath U.S. Ski and Snowboard, I'm open to those discussions. I just think we need to nail this down so that we know how to plan for the future. Very interesting, Bill. And of course, we'll be watching. Uh, Finally, a a word about COVID. And there's been many of them. Uh, uh, It's going to be a season like no other. The sage who once said, may you live in interesting times was certainly right. Uh, It has been uh, it's been a a terrible blow on so many levels. But uh, it's going to be a World Cup and a World Championship season. Uh, because of the virus, uh, unlike anything we've seen before. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. We keep, um, we really have taken an approach that because we are a little bit smaller, um, we consider ourselves to be really agile. And so throughout this summer, which was challenging um, and really going into the season, we're, we're of the mindset that we're planning for the best and preparing for the worst. So, you know, it's essentially we are, we are committed to trying to plan safely every every activity, every program, every competition opportunity that we can. Um, if we can't plan it effectively or safely, then we're totally open to canceling it, but we're not going to stop trying. So we've had a very successful summer. And up until about a week ago, I would have said, hey, we're going to have a full blast winter. Everything looks great. Now we're seeing the rates turn. Um, Germany and France went back into various aspects of lockdown yesterday. Um, you know, obviously there's places here in the United States that, you know, ski jumping Nordic combined are calling home for events and training that are also seeing some pretty high numbers. So, you know, we're, we, we, we started with a three plus nine budget update. We're now into uh five plus seven and soon to be six plus six. So, you know, we're trying to maintain an, an open mind, 
uh, with a real focus on providing the opportunities that we can to our athletes in a safe environment. And I, I think anybody who's trying to forecast too far into the future, other than just from a logistical perspective, is going to be severely disappointed this season. Well, uh, Bill, we wish you and all of your teams uh, much success this winter. Certainly, uh, from my perspective, you have been an inspiration to youth and the athletes, uh, to the Nordic Combined and Ski Jumping community, and uh, really appreciate all of the hard work you have done. So I think we could have another hour of conversation. It's been fascinating, but thank you very much, Bill. Well, Peter, thanks a lot. And I've really enjoyed catching up with you and sharing with everybody what's what's been going on. And hey, maybe we can plan on something, you know, to kind of dovetail the season in March. That would be great. All the best uh, to you. Uh, that is the executive director of USANS, uh, Bill DeMong. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of Ticket to Fly. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get them. I am Peter Graves. And along with producer Tom Kelly, thanks so very much for joining us. So long. So long.